Welcome to the Entmoot Podcast. I am Kenny Tallarico, and I'm joined by Sam Lieberman. Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Today, we have uh, another nominal sort of book review type of episode. Uh, We're talking about John Garth's 2003 book, Tolkien and the Great War, The Threshold of Middle-Earth. More broadly, we're going to be talking about um, what this book is about, which is Tolkien's relationship with the First World War, uh, which he served in. I think a good a good way to get into this would be to say, you know, we all know Tolkien fought in World War One. Uh, anytime, and anyone who knows anything about Tolkien, even people who aren't really into Lord of the Rings that much, are sort of faintly aware of this. Um, you read anything about him, including uh, Carpenter's biography, talk about Tolkien serving in the in the First World War. The author, John Garth, it should be noted, is a, is a real serious Tolkien scholar. He's r- written a lot of acclaimed pieces and books on the subject, including another Tolkien sort of coffee table picture book thing, which uh, me and Kenny both have. Yeah, I, I would say, honestly, I mean... This this might be wrong, but I think that he's kind of like maybe the most preeminent modern Tolkien scholar. Yeah, he's he's in the top two living Tolkien scholars for sure. Yeah, and and I mean this book specifically uh, on my the Tolkien in the Great War book on my edition of it on the cover it says Tolkien now a major motion picture. So that like biopic of Tolkien that came out a few years ago in like 2019 is explicitly uh based on this book in particular which i did not watch and forgot existed yeah i kind of did too before i had this book and saw that on the cover i think it got pretty poor reviews i know that so because it's based on this book i know a lot of it is like depicting tolkien's experience in world war one and i know that like there are some scenes where it extremely heavy-handedly will do a uh, a thing of like where Tolkien has trench fever and he's like hallucinating uh, uh, like on the front lines and he'll he's he sees like <laughs> he <laughs> the German like flamethrower guys you know I forget what they're called and he like hallucinates them as dragons and it's like oh my god and it's like that's where he got the idea it's like a a, a true like simpleton take. <laughs> There may be some truth to it, but just, like, having it, like, having that be in the movie, it's like, you know, for the dudes in the theater who are there to just be like, yeah, you know? I don't think there were many dudes in the in the, in the the theater. Yeah, there probably weren't. Okay, it had a budget of $20 million and did $9 million at the box office. Yeah, I mean, it flopped, but I'm just talking about, you know, just in terms of... I don't care if people liked it, <laughs> as old pals Richards and Witt would say. That's for that's for real Entmoot heads. You'll know what I'm talking about with that one. They would say the only uh, indication of quality is market success, which is why Walmart is the best uh, social example. Yeah, and why Tolkien would have loved Walmart. Yeah, Tolkien would have been obsessed with their deals. He would have been a Sam's Club member, honestly. He okay. To be to be quite honest, he probably would have liked their deals. Like he wouldn't have liked like how they how the deals came about necessarily. But I think he probably would have utilized their deals. I mean, don't we all at some point? Oh, this is true. I was I was spent like an hour yesterday comparing which uh, websites to buy contact lenses on. But I was already using my eye insurance, so this was to save like fifteen dollars. I I do that kind of thing all the time. I I'm always I will always uh place no value at all on my time that I take I have seen to, this. I have seen yeah. this firsthand. <laughs> I will do I I will do a lot to save like $3. <laughs> yeah. Which is in some ways this sort of focus on details is symbolic of the TCBS. <laughs> nice so, transition. So to, you know, Big Tolkien fans or uh, big, uh, you know, big Entmoot podcast listeners, you guys will be familiar with the TCBS. But for those who aren't, Kenny, could you fill us in on what the TCBS was? Yes. Yeah, so, so the TCBS stands for Tea Club Barovian Society, which is the intentionally ironic name that uh, Tolkien and his three uh, best friends from college, from high school. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot that uh, how British, uh, how their you know fancy British high school works, and it's basically like college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. What's the name of the school? King Edwards. Yes, yes. Which was a which in in the UK they call private schools public schools. What do they call actual public schools? I think they're just called state schools. Do you guys think the American elite private school circuit is bad? 
Um, and me and Kenny, you know, went to college with a lot of people who came out of that, and it it sounds pretty pretty insane, but. The British shit is crazy. Especially, I mean, uh, especially if you're talking about, like, the British, you know, private school, although I sh- I, perhaps public school. Uh, we're going to call them private schools because that's what they are. Yeah. Um, uh, circuit of, like, the early 20th century. I feel like that's, like, its peak. Just the, you know, these fancy pale boys, uh, like, uh, you know, roughhousing each other. Although worth noting, in both this and Tolkien's biography, the one he went to does not come off as insane as, like, when you read stories about what David Cameron was up to in his high school years. That, well, you know? yeah. Um, particularly what he was putting parts of himself into. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yes, the the uh, Tolkien and his three best friends in uh, high school, it, this was this, uh, this club that they would... Uh, basically get together and and uh drink tea and have discussions Uh, it was basically just like boys time yeah it was boys time to talk about literature and poetry and music and art and they all had sort of different interests some of them were more artists some of them were more poets when me and kenny actually came down and stayed with me like two weeks ago and we were talking about this episode we were planning this one and he was like, it's so weird that they called, uh, like, how they, like, sign everything TCBS, and they just call, like, their, like, their friend group, like, this, like, club and how formal it is. And I pointed out that uh, me and a few of my friends, although <laughs> not to the same extent as the TCBS stuff, which gets sort of crazy as it goes on. Yeah. Um, but we, uh, especially during COVID, me and, like, three of my friends would call us skateboarding together, the certified friends of fungus. And because we live in a lot of different places, when we all meet and hang out, we call it a bi, uh, one of the biannual CFF council meetings. So <laughs> I sort of get it a little bit, you know? You made the point that that they're kind of doing the same thing as you, but in a different idiom and in a different time. Yeah, in a different idiom and a different time, and they're, and, you know, referencing different things with the names. Uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, so, uh, well, so anyway, we should say that the 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 official and uh, most enduring members of the TCBS, it had uh, somewhat of a flexible uh, membership, but the, 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 the core, the fab four, if you will, were uh, Tolkien and then uh, Christopher Wiseman, Rob Gilson, and G.B. Smith. It was the four of them that was sort of the, the core of the group. And spoiler alert, by the end of this podcast, only two of them are alive. Yeah. One of the distinct things that comes through in this book, and this sounds like a sort of generic uh, thing to say, but like, is just how horrifying war is. And and John Garth is a very good writer. I think there are points where he tries to be, uh, reaches for language that's a bit too flowery for the subject matter, but overall his his writing is, is very vivid and poignant. And what really caught me with the letters when he talks about the letters that Tolkien would send to and from his uh, friend's parents after his friends would die. And particularly, I think it was, I can check, uh, G.B. Smith's mother, uh, one of the letters she writes to him is just harrowing. Um, And all like the details about him in the war, which we'll get into and what he observes. It's just like, this stuff is nasty. And the other crucial detail here is that and this is i think why one of the reasons why the world war one experience was so distinct in that sort of generation of british authors and writers um and you know men of class men of letters was that unlike the sort of contemporary american military experience at least since vietnam where your likelihood of serving and likelihood of dying was inversely related to your um, class identity or your family's wealth or status. In um, World War One, for the British, the boys and men serving at the front line were the officers, and the officers were only pulled from the middle and upper classes. And I use middle class in the sort of old English sense of the term, which in an American sense, we describe as upper or upper, upper middle class. Right, right. Um, although Tolkien wasn't really, but he sort of was. His We talked about this in previous episodes. His class identity is a little interesting in that regard. His family was middle class. He personally did not grow up with much wealth at all due to his his father's and, and then mother's right, death. Right, right. 
the so, so he wasn't high income. He didn't come from a high income background. But the actual identity of the of the families he came from was solidly middle class. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think also, and are you, you're using middle class in the in the British sense? In the British sense, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. That there is a there is sort of a distinctly American thing of that we use middle class to describe something very different than the rest of the world does. Yeah. There's a lot to there's a lot about that that goes into I think the just the American psyche in general. But we could do a yeah. totally different podcast about that. <laughs> True. But yeah, this is this is all to say that um, men of his age from his background died in incredible numbers. Cambridge, Oxford graduates, of which he was one of, you know, the sort of the, the people who formed and still form Britain's upper class, uh, ruling class, died in extreme numbers. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the uh, the four TCBS members. I mean, it's this is a, a little bit you know, tangential to the actual discussion of the war, but but just to give a little bit of background, uh, uh, so so we me- Sam mentioned earlier about uh, Wiseman being uh, Methodist, and that is uh, actually relevant because you, I'm sure you listener will know that Tolkien was a very strict Catholic. Even uh, well, actually, not I shouldn't say even, almost especially in in his youth, uh, he was. Uh, after his mother passed away, he was uh, raised basically by uh, a a Catholic priest, um, and uh, his religion was extremely important to him throughout his whole life. Um, and so, uh, and coming along with the his sort of Catholic identity is the sort of uh, all the things that go along with it a sort of um, an in- an interest in uh, mysticism, not in the not in the woo woo New Age sense. Yeah, exactly. Very much not in that sense, but in the sort of medieval. Yeah, really mi- medieval. medieval yeah, exactly. Like you know, saints that are flying, like that sort of mysticism that that comes out of the church. Whereas Wiseman, very much like in the sort of uh, British Methodist tradition, is uh, in 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 Garth's uh, phrase is a is characterized by a uh, progressive scientific liberalism. Wiseman certainly would not have been a laborite. It's really about the sort of old guard versus a sort of technocratic scientific liberalism. The sort of technocratic scientific liberalism that that Wiseman would have been w- would have probably associated with him. Of course, these are also just like you know friends of Tolkien's from like high school and college. It's not like there's a ton of material about them. Uh, yeah, we're we're also talking about like seventeen year olds. Exactly, exactly. Um, but uh, I still think that like characteristic of that time, you know, it would have been like that. This is the period of you know the great. I mean, before like the two thousands, like the great battles between like Darwinists and the sort of uh, they certainly would have been would not have been called creationists then. But but that sort of distinction. I mean, y- y- in the U.S., there's the Scopes trial and all of that stuff. What's interesting about Tolkien and this book points it out is it's easy to just like label him an old medievalist who hated technology and science, but that's really not true. Um, as as you know, uh, Carpenter's biography goes into he. A lot of his later years and later writing in the Silmarillion was preoccupied with trying to make the cosmology of his world fit with the new science about our own world. And as this book, I think John Garth uh, astutely points out, he had a big internal tension between his fascination with the past and history, especially the distant past, the sort of past where there aren't many records, if records at all. That sort of blends into fantasy and and also, you know, fairy stories and medievalism and, and Catholicism. There was a tension between those inclinations and also his real interest in science. You think about his work at once is both the sort of exercise in imagined history and a medievalism, but it's also like the main basis of it is a sci- is an extremely modern scientific understanding of this of languages. Um, the way that he develops his language is, is based on, you know, modern philology, linguistics as we call it now, which – and specifically forms of it that only developed right before slash during Tolkien's lifetime. And in his actual academic work, he really was quite a scientist. His um, study of language was very much based on, uh, you know, linguistics. The way that, you know, Quenya and Sindarin – diverge happens along the lines of uh, sound shifts, um, the science of which was only discovered, I believe, in the 1870s. So 
This was a real internal tension inside of Tolkien also. Yeah, 100%. Small distinctions aside, I think it's probably correct to say that, you know, Wiseman is sort of the odd one out in terms of his outlook generally. He's he's more of a, I guess you could say a modernist. Like Sam, like you said, probably was supportive of, of the Liberal Party at the time. Yes. Uh, although we don't know that for sure. Whereas the other three, Tolkien, Smith, and Gilson, were uh, either sort of less explicit. Smith and Gilson, we don't get a ton of uh, info about like how we get we get details about like arts and stuff. yeah exactly how they and 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 so for example we know the detail that like tolkien smith and gilson were both sort of like uh i don't know what the word would be but sort, sort of they each had their own sort of nostalgias for for an imagined past uh you know sort of a an instinct that is i think uh quite low small c conservative i mean it's certainly it's certainly one that that sam you and i also share even though we're not political conservative so it's this is not something that is you know limited to uh political conservatives but it's something that does characterize political conservatism as well it's probably more often found in political conservatives than people on the political left right it's in its most extreme form it's sort of a almost an anti-utopian view right that it's like you know all the things that are important and all the things that are, you know, worth uh, building in society are we can find in the past, right? Which is which is not a sort of leftist view of the world. No, Garth sort of mentions this in passing, and I don't know that I have much to add to it, but I do think it was I did think it was interesting. He he says that Tolkien, Smith, and Gilson each have uh, like their their sort of nostalgic period that they are like obsessed with and and sort of yearn for. Uh, we already know that Tolkien's is is the Anglo-Saxon period, uh, but he writes that Smith's was the 18th century, which is which is sort of funny to think that that's like his nostalgic perfect past is like 140 years before his, like yeah. I mean. Kenny, me and you are both, like, freakishly obsessed with, like, latter 19th century history. Yes, the Civil War and the Gilded Age. I don't know that I'd say I'm nostalgic for it. Oh, yeah, no, no, not (laughs) at all. It sounds like it sucked. Okay, anyway, yeah, so Smith is obsessed with the 18th century, uh, and Gilson is obsessed with the Italian Renaissance, which is a little bit more understandable. I mean, yeah, I get that one more. I mean, that's not my cup of tea, but I get it. Yeah, yeah. As uh, as as listeners, I'm sure that that you know, uh, in uh, in 1914, the war in Europe breaks out. Gavrilo Princip, uh, the uh, the Bosnian Serb uh, nationalist, I believe, uh, assassinates hero. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, assassinates uh, the Archduke uh, Franz Ferdinand. Uh, who's, who's the heir to uh, the Austro-Hungarian throne, uh, and which which uh, an assassination that sends uh, shockwaves across the the continent and through a series of convoluted uh, um, alliances and treaties, basically obligates every nation in Europe to declare war on each other. <laughs> Although I I should add that like I I do sort of agree with the take that this type of war around this time was sort of inevitable. Totally. And this was just what set it off. It's sort of the culmination of, of the German nationalist project. I mean, Bismarck's out of power at this point, but it arose through a bunch of offensive wars. Britain and France are in sort of a uh, a relatively recent allyship. Uh, as we know, for hundreds of years, they had been sort of the, the bitterest of rivals. Um, but they, uh, they had formed a partnership, uh, you know, earlier in... Uh, the 19 aughts, I guess you could say. As the war breaks out, the sort of impression uh, across Britain is that, oh, this will blow over and this will be over soon. But uh, the the British Secretary of State for War is this guy, Herbert Kitchener. And uh, he basically goes on the record and says, no, I think that this war is going to like really drag out and as the secretary of state for war it's his uh prerogative to you know organize the the british army and uh so he institutes what's called the new army which was referred to at the time usually as kitchener's army uh which is basically the at first all volunteer force and then a couple years later uh it the they institute uh conscription um, but up until this point, uh, the, the Britain, I believe had only had a, a standing army, a professional army. Uh, this is the first all volunteer army, um, which is very, I think, uh, uh, 
representative of the times in in, in some way is, is is sort of even in this sort of aristocratic society a little bit more i mean it's it's out of necessity of course but but there is still a little bit more of an opening to like regular everyday people i mean on the wikipedia page for kitchener's army it it, it says uh, that it was also referred to often disparagingly as kitchener's mob which you can imagine is the sort of upper class view of all of these commoners who are you know getting armed and, and sent overseas a view which it's worth noting uh that garth gets into that tolkien really did not have yes um, correct on 149, he it talks. He mentioned that Tolkien felt like real affinity with the working class men, and he also uh, really disliked most of the other officers from similar class backgrounds as himself, uh, who he found pompous and, and bureaucratic. And it mentions that it was during the war, um, and specifically training for the war, that Tolkien's dislike of bureaucracy began. But but Tolkien really liked these working class guys. He thought they were uh, more normal and relatable than the uh, officers he was serving with. Yes, he did. And it's also well documented. Tolkien himself said it multiple times that that he based uh, Sam Gamgee on the sort of regular uh, Tommies, you know, the, the, the regular everyday guys. I remember in my interview with Maurice Isserman uh, for the episode we did on um, the counterculture, I remember him also sort of talking about this, that that. And I remember, you know, if I can paraphrase what what he said, uh, I remember basically the the idea that Tolkien admired the 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 Tommies. I think that uh, he also respected their acceptance of like this is my duty in some way, uh, especially because um, at the time that Tolkien enlisted, the 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 army was still uh, all volunteer. Um, by the I believe it, it, so it became a uh, conscription or the, the, they instituted a draft in addition to the volunteers in uh, 1916. Uh, Tolkien enlisted in July of 1915. Uh, so at least early on, it was actually all volunteer. I'll say uh, Garth has a quote that I like about Kitchener's army. It kind of sums up what we're saying. It says, uh, he, he writes that while Kitchener's army, quote, enshrined old social boundaries, it also chipped away at the class divide by throwing men from all walks of life into a desperate situation together. And that's certainly the case, I think, that you see with, with Tolkien, is that he really hadn't, you know, spent any time at all with working and lower class British guys, and uh, he really developed sort of an affinity for them, um, enough that, you know, the sort of arguably the true protagonist of of his great work is based off of them it's also i mean worth talking about as we get into the war and and the nationalist impulses at play which led to it um sort of tolkien's view on nationalism which changed through the war but not that much and on 51 garth writes that tolkien spoke in defense of nationalism at a college debate um to him the nation's greatest goal was cultural self-realization not power over others but essential to this were patriotism and a community of belief. I don't defend Deutschland über alles, but certainly do in Norwegian alt for Norge, all for Norway, he told Wiseman. By his own admission, therefore, Tolkien was both an English patriot and a supporter of home rule for the Irish. So he has a sort of really 19th century understanding of nationalism that is sort of every distinct you could say ethnic group, but that doesn't really map. Every distinct cultural people, group. People with a capital people, P. Every distinct people. And none of this stuff really works, which is why all of this has been bad for the last few hundred years. Yeah. But, this, uh, this, I dis- think this is better than like a truly British imperialist view. But Oh, yeah, yeah way better. <laughs> oh, his view is way better. I'm saying that all none, none of it really works, right? Of but, course not. Yeah. But um, I'm not even really criticizing his beliefs here. I mean, the, these beliefs for the time for someone of his background are excellent. Yeah. You know? Yes. Uh, but those are sort of his beliefs. During the early stages of the war, he does get sort of whipped into um, the anti-German fervor, which is especially surprising given his admiration for German culture. And, you know, he writes extensively in his letters and they're said in this book about the tension between his German heritage and his respect for German culture and being at war with the Germans. But he did... um uh, during the early stages of the war, uh, equate Germans with barbarity. Uh, this is from Garth on page 128. Kalimban is barbary. Germany's Kalimbari is barbarity. Kalimbo is a savage, uncivilized man, barbarian, giant monster troll. And Kalimbardi is glossied the Germans. 
So he really briefly loses his attraction to what he terms the, the German ideal um, and, and sort of does get semi-whipped into the, uh, in, into the war project. Although, by the end of the war, uh, this is all, all gone. On um, page uh, 219, uh, Garth quotes Tolkien saying, I'm very anti that kind of thing. When people ask him if, uh, in response to readers asking if orcs were supposed to rep- represent Germans, and it's specifically his experience on the trenches, um, and like in the war, seeing the people that he was fighting or killing, so on and so forth, that you know the sort of cliched but true realization that we're all the same. Yeah, in that same letter, that's a letter to his son Christopher, uh, and in that same letter, he writes that uh, orcs represent the the evil in in man but that it's not a sort of like the orcs are the germans and um i think i don't remember exactly what story he's talking about but whoever the good guys are in that story whether it's the hobbits or or the men or the elves uh represent you know the the british or the allies or whoever uh he says that the the orcs represent the bad in both the germans and the allies and that the men or the elves or whoever represent the good in both the germans and the allies that we all have it sort of within us uh which i mean is which is certainly i think coming out of uh his his faith as well um he also sort of related to that about his sort of view of like the war project um uh, at the time, uh, we don't have any contemporary accounts of him talking about this, but he talked about it later. Uh, at the time, he he really didn't uh, did not like the overly optimistic discussions of of World War One and the world following the war. Um, you can imagine him sort of scoffing at the idea of sort of uh, you know the the utopian ideal of, of uh, like. President Wilson, for example, with the League of Nations at the, you know, and, the, and, and sort of this utopian project at Versailles, uh, he, he he was explicitly very uh, skeptical that that would happen. Again, I think partially due to his his faith, right, that there there is sort of always this struggle between good and evil, good and evil until, you know, the end times. So he, he recalled later, though, uh, someone asked him about the, you know, the fight between because his his work, there is a very clear sort of you know struggle between good and evil throughout the work, uh, and and his quote about that was uh, this: that I suppose was an actual conscious reaction from the war, from the stuff I was brought up on in the war to end all wars, that kind of stuff, which I didn't believe in at the time, and I believe in less now. You know, he's saying that uh, there will be no war to end wars as long as there are people, there will be wars, uh, because you know we're all we're all born in sin and we all, you know, we all have greed and we all have, uh, wrath and, um, and are inclined to, uh, hurt one another. So, uh, I do think that it's, it's sort of a, it is, I mean, as with everything with Tolkien, it is a very Catholic view. Yeah, completely. I also think relating to his sort of, um, scoffing at the sort of post-war optimism and also, uh, pre-war optimism there's also sort of his view of the obligation of the soldier. Uh, Gar- Garth on, on page 71 uh, discusses an old English poem, The Battle of Maldon, which Tolkien translated as, We shall be the sterner, heart the bolder, spirit the greater, as our strength lessens. And he sort of discusses how Tolkien was summarizing the old northern warrior code the old heroic code of the norse and the anglo-saxons which talks about the obligation of the warrior but does not glorify death and how tolkien was sort of specifically responding to the um uh, self-sacrificial tone of rupert brooks already famous the soldier which quote implied that a soldier's worth to his nation was greater in death than life and uh, tolkien did not agree with that yeah uh, as Neither do we. Yeah. <laughs> We've gotten, I think, a little bit ahead of ourselves. I want to go back a little bit and, uh, and, and do a little, bit, um, a little bit more sort of scene setting here. So, uh, uh, so Britain is, you know, enters the war, 1914, and I believe that Tolkien – this could be wrong. I'm pretty sure, though, that Tolkien was the last of his four – the four of them to enlist. Uh, the, he was. Yeah. So there was, you know, very – again, I think – a, a sort of a very foreign concept to not only to today, but also to like 50 years ago as well, 
is the idea that there was very strong social pressure for any like young men to enlist. Uh, very strong to the point where like Tolkien, I would think for obvious reasons, like didn't want to enlist. Uh, and he was basically shamed by like members of his family into enlisting. He didn't immediately volunteer to join the war in uh, August 1914, which is when uh, they started, uh, you know, the volu- you, you could volunteer. Um, he, he was in school, but uh, but he was like shamed by his relatives. And then a year later, he had finished his finals in July 1915. And uh, he, he, he wrote later that uh, his uh, his relatives like sort of implicit disapproval of him became like explicit with them like mocking him and stuff. And so he, he finally enlisted. Like I said, the the other three, Wiseman, Gilson, and Smith, had already enlisted. Uh, Gilson and Smith, I believe, were both – maybe not. I, they may have already both been on on the continent though. And I'm pretty sure that Wiseman was uh, in – if not the Navy, I know that like he was mostly on ships. I don't remember all the details. But I, I know that they were all separated, of course. They were. Although it's worth noting that although Wiseman was at sea, this biography gets into the, gets into the fact that he still faced some real danger. Oh yeah, his his ship was like under attack by a German. Yeah, yeah. there was one naval battle where some of the other ships in uh, what would the word be? His fleet, the maybe. Formation. In the, in the, yeah, and the fleet uh, got destroyed, and there were six thousand sailors dead. So anyway, uh, a little bit more to get us to uh, to get you know Tolkien over to the continent here. So. Um, like I said, he joins in July 1915. Uh, he actually like he does his training and everything. He also had just gotten married, uh, or he or he does get married like during this period. Uh, so and you know he he wrote that having to leave uh, Edith, his his new wife, who uh, listeners will know he uh, loved very much and was married to until she died like 50 years later. Um, uh, he said that leaving her was was like a death. Um, and, uh, so he, he, he's training in England, in Britain for a while. Uh, he finally sets off on, um, June 4th, 1916. He is a member of the Lancashire Fusiliers. That's his, uh, his battalion. Uh, he wrote later, uh, multiple times, uh, that he didn't expect to survive when he set off, uh, for, for Europe, um, which, I would tend to believe. I mean, you know, you might some people might say that sort of after the fact to make themselves sound more valiant, but it would be very reasonable to basically not expect that you're going to live through this judging by how gruesome and how brutal the stories would have been coming from uh from France at that time. Um so he like I said, he he sets off for the continent in uh June 1916. Um Starting on July 1st, 1916 is what is often considered, it's like one of the most deadly and bloodiest battles like in human history, uh, which is the Battle of the Somme. And uh, that's in northern France. The Somme is this is a river, and it's an offensive of the uh, you know the British and French against uh, the Germans all along uh, this this line. Basically, they're you know it's the cliche of of them fighting uh, you know for a couple miles of territory. Uh, and it's the, probably the, the most sort of, uh, the most sort of truly horrific example of that, uh, because after five months really of, of fighting and of, uh, over 1 million total casualties, uh, the line moves like a few miles and then they just kind of are like, well, I guess, I guess we give up. And they just kind of move on and and fight their other battles elsewhere and stuff. It's truly the uh, like the epitome of lives lost over absolutely nothing. Um, and it's also the Somme is also the the first use of the tank uh, in in modern uh, in, in 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 battle in combat, uh, which is very significant. Um, it's the sort of the introduction of what Tolkien would call. Um, warfare like by machinery uh up to this point it was just infantrymen you know fighting and killing each other the tank in particular represents this this real shift of this device that is seemingly invincible and uh you know shoots fire out of it and is just this this i mean it's 
it, it certainly in its sort of in its in its uh, how it must have looked and and felt to because it was it was a, a British invention how it must have looked to the Germans. Actually, I'll I'll read this this quote here. Garth actually quotes a um, German description of the first tank that was deployed uh, that that was deployed, uh, and uh, this was you know in a German newspaper or something, and then it was quoted by the Times in in England. Um, the quote is this. The monster approached slowly, hobbling, moving from side to side, rocking and pitching, but it came nearer. Nothing obstructed it. A supernatural force seemed to drive it onwards. Someone in the trenches cried, The devil comes! And that word ran down the line like lightning. Suddenly tongues of fire licked out of the armored shine of the iron caterpillar. The English waves of infantry surged up behind the devil's chariot. It it gets at another point that that Garth makes, and I believe he and himself is quoting H.G. Wells, I think, who who wrote something to the effect of um, any sufficiently advanced technology to someone who is not familiar with it is it just indistinguishable from magic, uh, which. I think that uh, he – and then he draws some comparisons uh, with the some of the story of the fall of Gondolin, which we can talk about in a little bit. But I think that the the way that the tank, you know, coming onto the scene at the Battle of the Somme is also just representative of just the sheer amounts of of death and suffering that these – that this war and then World War II are going to sort of, you know, bring on the world. I mean it, it sort of culminates in, in the, the atomic bomb and in this – you know, this ultimate representation of, like, science wielded only for the purpose of, of mass murder. You know, sort of sort of getting into the whole uh, War of the Machines thing, and you have these, you know, giant infantry and even cavalry rallies into, like, machine gun fire, which is just insane. And this is really the last war where they're doing tactics like that. Right. And, and, I, and I mean, just, just the, the capacity to to you know take human life i mean i think of the i think of the d-day landing uh of like you know thousands and thousands of of soldiers who are you know coming up onto the onto the you know the shore on the beaches knowing that there are you know machine guns up perched way ahead of them uh and that there's basically no chance that they're going to survive the 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 dominance of machines oh like machines can take human life so easily there is some sort of psychological effect to that, which which obviously culminates in the in the atom bomb. Yeah, exactly, and I think it also is in some way reflected in the lack of any sort of the in the the only sort of uh, machinery, so to speak, of in Lord of the Rings being you know that that's wielded by by Saruman for and and Sauron for their sort of evil you know, uh, uh, waging war and also ravishing the environment and uh, their you know the. The hobbits don't have any. All they have are their, like, mills and stuff. Yeah. Getting back to the Somme, though, as I mentioned, there's over one million total casualties across those five months, including, like, it's like 50,000 Brits or something on the first day. It's something, like, completely insane like that. But but overall, our best estimates are that it was 440,000 Germans, 420,000 Brits, and 200,000 French that were either uh, died or, or wounded. Uh, among those Brits on the first day of the Somme, uh, Rob Gilson, Tolkien's uh, friend and uh, member of the TCBS, becomes the first member of the four of them to be killed. And this causes a, a sort of internal rift in the TCBS where uh, Smith and Wiseman are, you know, the TCBS must continue. Uh, Gilson is forever with us. And Tolkien, although he doesn't really fully commit to it, is like, you know, one gone It'll never be the same. The sort of sanctity of this has been broken. Yeah, I I, I picked up on a big sort of uh, something that, that really stood out to me in a letter that he wrote to Wiseman and, and Smith uh, after they found out that Gilson had died. Mind you, by this time, uh, uh, Smith may have been like somewhere on the Somme at this point, but he was not on the front lines. Uh, Wiseman was, you know, off at sea somewhere. And Tolkien is still in Britain. He hasn't actually... Uh, or no, maybe he's maybe he's on the continent, but he's not near the Somme right now. Uh, and um, Tolkien writes to to the other two of them. Uh, so far, my chief impression is that something has gone crack. I feel just the same to both of you, nearer if anything, and very much in need of you. But I don't feel a member of a little complete body now. I honestly feel that the TCBS has ended. 
I feel a mere individual. And I underlined that last sentence a bunch of times. Uh, I feel a mere individual really uh, struck something uh, within me. I think that, first of all, I feel like I like empathize so hard with Tolkien in this letter. Um, I think that, you know, if, like, God forbid, if one of my close friends died, you know, I think that this would kind of be... I would feel incomplete and I would, uh, I would, the, the, the idea, my chief impression is that something has gone crack. It, he's in denial. Um, and then the idea of, I feel a mere individual, um, this sort of, you get a sense of how important the sort of communion and camaraderie of like the whole group was to Tolkien, um, which quite honestly, I hate to keep bringing it back to it, but quite honestly, kind of also fits in with his faith too. <laughs> The yeah, the sort of totally. you know the the sort of communitarian aspect of 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 Catholicism. Um, he doesn't, you know. I feel a mere individual. That to some would be a good thing, being an individual. But to Tolkien, it's it's not a good thing. It's you know to to be human is to be a member of a group and to to form these bonds. Yeah, I, I don't know. I th- that letter really was. I found I found that to be one of the more devastating uh, parts of the book. Definitely. Well, I'll, I'll say go, so. Going forward, uh, Tolkien actually arrives to the Somme with the Lancashire Fusiliers in September 1916. He was a signals officer, uh, so he was you know transmitting messages and and stuff, which was a very 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 important role. And uh, and he also often worked very close to the front line. So just like the others. He wasn't just, you know, in some office somewhere or something. He actually was like... He was going out into the, you know, no man's land and, and laying down telephone lines. Exactly, yeah. Like under bullet fire. Yep, exactly. And he also was, you know, like everyone else in the British Army, was in the trenches where, you know, that were filled with lice and and uh, and disease, which, of course, would uh, be what sends him back home on that. On October 25th, uh, so this is about, you know, a little over a month after he had actually arrived there. Uh, he contracts trench fever, which had been, uh, you know, rampant and was was spread, I believe, with with the lice uh, that were, uh, you know, all over these these trenches. Uh, and it's it gets pretty bad. He has a very high fever and he gets sent home uh, two weeks later. And uh, that marks the end of his uh, of his actual service, at, you know. Uh, in Europe on the front lines. Um, so he's home and, uh, you know, he's sick. Uh, he, he eventually, of course, recovers, and uh, but it does take a long time. Uh, and the Battle of the Somme continues, you know, raging on. And uh, around, like, in the last couple weeks, uh, G.B. Smith gets hit by uh, some shrapnel. And uh, obviously it's not as bad as Gilson, but he... Uh, he it gets infected and he gets gangrene. And so he dies on uh, December 3rd. Um, and so that leaves just Wiseman and Tolkien as the, uh, the only two members of this, you know, four man group. Um, and you, you, you recall Wiseman is the one who is uh, sort of the, the, he was the odd one out in terms of his outlook in some ways. He, he was the, you know, what Garth says he was characterized by scientific liberalism. Uh, and uh, Tolkien and him would often have very long, sort of long arguments. <laughs> the one thing I want to get in is that, uh, you know, he was obviously fighting in France. And the common understanding of Tolkien's view of the French, which this podcast has been on the record endorsing and citing, was that Tolkien hated the French. And this is true, but not as true as I thought it was. Garth on page 189 actually comes for our boy Humphrey Carpenter. Uh, rest in power. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll start off with this. Aside from its wine, which he liked, France can have uh, can have given Tolkien small compensation for the miseries of war. He disliked the native language and detested French cooking. And then there's the anecdote about when he was uh, a tutor to two Mexican tourists and one of their moms got hit by a car in France uh, in the summer of 1913, which is described in great detail uh, in Carpenter's biography as the moment when he really stopped liking France, which he never really liked, you know. He's on the record when he was a like preteen or early teenager saying that the Norman Conquest was the biggest disaster in human civilization. A truly based take. 
Yeah, it's epic. It's so fire. Um, but here's where we go. Here, here's where the infighting between the Tolkien scholars begins, although it's really one-sided because Carpenter's been dead for a while. Yeah, Har- Humphrey Carpenter, describing this attitude as gallophobia, surely pays too much attention to mischievous hyperbole, as he does regarding Tolkien's views on Shakespeare and Wagner. Later, Tolkien's knowledge of French extended to the niceties of dialectical Eastern Walloon pronunciation, according to his protege and friend, Simone Diarden. Certainly, he felt a lingering attachment towards the region of France in which he served. In 1945, he wrote, I can see clearly now in my mind's eye the old trenches and the squalid houses and the long roads of Artois, and I would visit them again if I could. It is a nostalgia not for remembered happiness, but for a lost intimacy even with horror, drudgery, and ugliness. Which is all to say that Tolkien's view of the French is a little more nuanced than I had previously believed. And also a reminder that in his letters, I mean, Tolkien was a poster. His medium was letter writing, but he was a poster. So he'd exaggerate shit, he'd shit post, he'd say crazy shit that he didn't always necessarily fully believe. He didn't actually hate the French, he just sort of disliked them. He didn't actually hate Shakespeare. Yeah, totally. I Yes, I agree. And I do think, yeah, like, man, we've talked about this in the past, but like letter writing, it truly was the tweeting of its time. I mean, certainly not me, because there's not going to be books written about me when I die. But like people of our generation who are the type who will get books written about them when they die, there won't be all these letters to sift through. Like, what are you going to use? Like emails? Emails cannot hold a candle because emails are all like no. they're the, they're like logistical. People aren't yeah. having these long back and forth. I mean, like you do people do that over text, and, th- and that some older people do that over email. Like you know who does that over email? The people that grew up writing letters. Yeah, I was about to say like my late grandfather, you know, was an old academic, and he wrote emails the way that people write used to write letters. But like, there's not going to be like great texts to mine through to write biographies about, which is a, a real bummer. And I want to start sending people letters. I mean, yeah, it's, I, I, listen, I will, I will be glad to be a, a, you know, a recipient of a, of a Sam Lieberman letter. There's a, there's a bunch of, there's a, a few things I noted that I did want to mention, uh, just some, some details that, you know, we might not have that much to talk about, but I do think are, are worth saying, uh, cause I, I thought they were interesting. Uh, one of them was that, um, during the war, uh, Tolkien would always attend mass on Sundays, uh, as he, you know, did his whole life, presumably. And his uh, his battalion's chaplain was, of course, Anglican, and also, of course, uh, averse to Catholics. Um, so the you know his brigades the the, the brigades Catholics, in, including himself, were ministered to by the uh, the chaplain with the Royal Irish Rifles, which I just found interesting. Um, yeah, because of you know all of the the history, but you know between the the British and and Irish relations and and how the religions sort of uh, you know map onto that. And um, uh, I wonder, you know, his his I wonder how much his support for Irish home rule was uh, came out of his sympathy for them as Catholics too. I'm sure a lot of it. I bet a lot of it. Yeah, definitely a lot of it. But I also do think some of it is a sort of a more positive nationalism you know i agree yeah i think that he probably had a soft spot for the irish though because of the definitely catholicism he also had a soft spot for for celtic cultures like he had a particular soft spot for what the welsh language yes that that's true yeah that's true um so i just thought that was interesting i don't have that much to say about it but i i was I, something i never even would have thought about that his uh you know his battalion's chaplain probably would have uh you know thought that he was a papist scum <laughs> So I was talking earlier about the tanks. Um, Garth draws the the specific connection to um, in in the story of the the fall of Gondolin, which we haven't mentioned so far. I know we haven't really talked about it that much actually at all on the podcast, but it, it's really it's the first story that you can really I think place that that he wrote chronologically in terms of his life that you can really place like in the cosmology of the legendarium. Um, and of course, it changes over time, but it's the it's the really the first one that really resembles the sort of the later story that became the fall of Gondolin, which is in the Silmarillion. Very quickly, it's it's a it's this hidden city, this hidden elven city, uh, that is destroyed by, you know, Melkor and his uh his nasty gang of ne'er do wells. Yeah, his 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 lackeys, right? If they ever do a film adaptation of the Silmarillion, I want the like orcs and Balrogs and like weird serpent creatures invading Gondolin to like go to Melkor and be like, 
Hey, boss. Oh, yeah. I want. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I want them to be like old school, like goons. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm referencing, of course, is that he writes about these iron dragons that have hearts and spirits of blazing fire. And, and, and they carry orcs inside of them. Uh, Garth makes the connection that that kind of sounds like tanks. It certainly sounds like these, you know, pieces of, of machinery that to the elves would be indistinguishable from witchcraft or magic, uh, which is, you know, referencing that H.G. Wells quote. Uh, I hope I'm not saying the wrong person. I'm pretty sure it was an H.G. Wells quote. That would make sense given his topics of interest. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I thought that, that was interesting, especially because there aren't at least that I can think of, I, I can't think of that many, like, specific cases where, like, hearts and spirits of blazing fire, to me, it also that, I mean, Garth writes this too, but I, it made me think of just, like, a combustion engine. Like, that just sounds like uh, something that's motorized, which I don't really think of there being much stuff in the Legendarium that, that has that same connotation to me. I mean, it, Garth notes that Tolkien didn't actually write any parts of the Silmarillion in the trenches, uh, Tolkien in a letter addresses that myth as spoof, complete spoof, because <laughs> he's like, "How the fuck would I have had time and like focus to actually do that?" And like, although although Smith, I Smith did write poetry in the trenches. He did, he <laughs> did. Built different, but Tolkien was thinking about this stuff. He was pondering it. He was doing contemplation, um, and a lot of these ideas definitely sort of um, manifested there. On um, page uh, 38, Garth cites a, uh, one of Tolkien's letters where he he writes about, you know, his real taste for fairy stories was, you know, brought to life by all these things, philology, et cetera, et cetera, but quickened to life by full war. So although he did wasn't writing this stuff during the war, it brought a lot of it to life. But I was going to say that the, we're going to be putting out this episode with a companion, which member of the TCBS uh quiz in a in a sort of 20 teens buzzfeed quiz style <laughs> format they really were they were an in, they were a cool crew so in terms of their yeah. you know, differences between them that's true yeah and art, art history and visual art and also G gilson was notably like sort of crazy <laughs> was gilson the one who had the very troubled relationship with his his fiance yeah estelle yes estelle. or was that smith was it smith i i'm gilson? sorry i get them mixed up too yeah me too I think that was Smith. One of Smith or Gilson uh, had like a fuck a weird fucked up relationship uh, with his fiance, and then also like Christopher Wiseman in letters is like, "Are we sure he's not mentally ill?" <laughs> so I, um, I feel like the results of this hypothetical quiz would be pretty evenly split among the population. So there, there was a part uh, that really stood out to me, and because it had some real echoes of our discussion on the uh the the charles mills essay about race in in tolkien and it because it echoed a distinct conversation that that i remember you and i had um and that is uh garth is garth sort of traces uh tolkien's title for for the book of lost tales which uh if you don't know is the sort of uh the original name for what would later become all the stories in the silmarillion garth traces that title uh, as, as Tolkien giving a nod to the work of a literary scholar named uh, Raymond Wilson Chambers, who, uh, and this is, I'm, qu I'm quoting Garth now, uh, rages against the Romans for disdaining the illiterate Germans and failing to record their songs and tales, and laments the fact that despite King Alfred's love for the old days, the Anglo-Saxons wrote too few of them down. And then uh, this is a Chambers quote. He says, so this world of high-spirited chivalrous song has passed away. So th this is reminding me in particular of our discussion, uh, which comes out of the Mills essay, about the idea that, like, some cultures and, and traditions are sort of worth writing down and preserving and studying, and others are not. Uh, this is a big argument that Mills makes about the sort of dehumanizing of the orcs and of uh, the bad guys, basically, that they don't really have a culture or a history uh, or, or or even really like an interesting language to to speak of. Uh, it's only sort of the the valiant and and the and the good that that get that privilege. I found it really interesting that here Garth is explicitly like quoting this scholar who he Garth is writing that that Tolkien, uh, you know, w would have been very familiar with and approved of. 
uh, who was very sort of angry at the Romans for having that exact attitude towards the, uh, you know, the, the Germanic peoples. I mean, maybe it's different because it's Germans. So, you know, you might then be getting into a whole different sort of idea of the sort of race thing comes into play that, well, of course, the, you know, German culture is inherently worthy of preservation, even when the, you know, the Romans were wrong about that, but other cultures, maybe not. I, I don't know that, you know, you might be able to to make that argument, but I think that that is, it's an interesting counterpoint to the Mills essay. I do think there is some element of like, that he would lament any culture that didn't get to write its stories down. Yes. Like, I, I think if you would ask Tolkien, do you wish there were earlier written records of like pre-Columbian Cherokee culture and folklore. I think he would say yes. I, I he wouldn't just say yes because I think like almost anyone would say yes to that. I think he would say yes enthusiastically because he would. Yes, he, that's what yeah. I mean. That's what I mean. I, yeah, that, I, I, that's what I mean. Because he would like want to study it and he would be interested in it. I, I totally yes. agree. And in fact, uh, and this is also related to our discussion earlier about his you know views of like British nationalism and, and imperialism. This is uh, he's reacting here in a letter. Uh, to the idea that uh, English would become the lingua franca of the whole world, um, which it kind of did, um, after uh, specifically because of America's entry on the world stage after World War One. And he's writing in a letter, he says, quote, No language has ever possessed but a small fraction of the varied excellences of human speech, and each language represents a different vision of life. I think that his field of study... Uh, and and his love of his field of study and his love of language, uh, in a particular way, actually are themselves somewhat of a rebuttal of the uh, the Mills argument. Yeah, and there was a letter which I didn't because I hadn't seen it before. Didn't bring up in the Mills essay, which we could we could almost like re- record like a ten minute addendum to that. But there's a letter from uh, 1944 to Christopher Tolkien. And this is Tolkien. I know nothing about British or American imperialism in the Far East that does not fill me with regret and disgust. I am afraid I am not even supported by a glitter, glimmer of patriotism in this remaining war. And that's him discussing World War II. Yeah, that that is a, that is an, a very unusual opinion for, I would think, any Brit, but especially a Brit of his sort of social position. Yes. I mean, he was he was on the record as being opposed to... American and British imperialism in Asia. And not just opposed, but disgusted. Yeah, disgusted by. I wanted to say uh, one final thing as a sort of an epilogue to this, uh, the the sort of, uh, you know, following the war, uh, as as we mentioned, Chris Wiseman and Tolkien were the only two um, remaining uh, uh, members of that core TCBS group. Garth writes about how they sort of tried to stick together as the, you know, only two remaining members. Uh, this is a, a, a Garth quote, though, uh, and I was I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Quote, Tolkien found the most mundane human misunderstandings depressing and blamed a clash of backgrounds arising from what he called the decay of faith, the breakup of that huge atmosphere or background of faith, which was common to Europe in the Middle Ages. Wiseman was scornful. That huge atmosphere of magic, that ghastly atmosphere of superstition, that is it that is gone. And this this was a religious dispute, with Tolkien speaking for the pre-schismatic Roman Catholic world, (laughs) Wiseman for the Protestant Reformation and its legacy. Um, I love that pre-schismatic detail really makes that. Um, Brief thoughts on that, though, is that I think that in a lot of ways, like, the two of them, without the sort of influence of the others, I think that they both... They really did sort of they argued a lot because they were at fundamental odds like about sort of what not only like how they saw the world, but like also what art is is sort of worth studying and consuming. Um, And uh, you get that in the fact that Wiseman like did not think very highly of Tolkien's uh, fiction and uh, the the sort of the more fantasy adjacent sorts of things that Tolkien was doing. Uh, Wiseman thought it was all, you know silly and uh and it's because he's you know sort of a rationalist uh scientific protestant and uh and tolkien is more into the 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 mystical and 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 the wonderful if you know in in a in a particular sense of the word um so of course because of this uh after the war the two of them uh drift apart you know they would often get into arguments and and offend each other 
Uh, however, there, there was no, like, rift between them. It's not like they got in some huge argument and never talked again. Uh, Tolkien always spoke fondly of Wiseman, and uh, most significantly, I was saving this until the end, uh, he named his son Christopher Tolkien after Christopher Wiseman. The TCBS in spirit lived on uh, through Christopher Tolkien. And then, of course, as a slight addendum, Garth also posits that uh, as Tolkien and Wiseman drifted apart, uh, that he thinks that C.S. Lewis kind of filled the void <laughs> left by Wiseman and the TCBS, because Tolkien always needed, like, a bro or a group of bros to, like, hang out with. To argue with. And argue with and bounce <laughs> ideas off of. And, like, chastise for either not being Catholic or not being sufficiently Catholic. <laughs> yeah. The way that they talk, the, the TCBS, in their letters to each other about how they're going to change the world, I was sort of scoffing at. But it is also sort of a distinctly early 20th century British thing. Not British, just early 20th century thing. I do feel like there's a sense in which the cynicism that World War I caused or revealed uh, has, has not gone away since. And, and that's also what makes Tolkien such a compelling figure uh, and an enduringly one is that his work is absent, really, of that cynicism. That cynicism characterizes a lot of the other... Uh, writers that came out of this period. Yeah. But Tolkien's work is very earnest. There was also a, a sort of distinct, in the late 19th and early 20th century in Britain, if you were not, you know, like most people, you know, living in squalor, or working in the coal mines, but you were a sort of member of the middle class, I think there was a, a, a that, that just a real unbridled optimism that with World War One and then World War Two. And then austerity and Thatcherism, I don't think was that optimism was ever really reclaimed. Obviously, you could say that the upper classes have since been insulated of all of this. But I think the cynicism understandably sort of stretched across society. And you could find periods of like relative optimism in there, like the 90s broadly, I think. But And yeah, speaking also of the um, – yeah, the upper class is totally insulated from the actual – you know, effects from, from any actual reason to be cynical, that doesn't stop them from being cynical. <laughs> you know, I, it's, it's not like there's it's also hard not to at least somewhat reverberate the culture around you. Exactly. Exactly. But it's not like they're even now, it's not like there's some great optimism that characterizes, you know, the upper classes. I think that to a lot of people, the sort of, you know, the arc of the moral universe thing, the, the Martin Luther King quote that, uh, that Obama always quotes, I think that especially like after Trump and and all that stuff, just in the modern sort of history, that feels like it's like, well, that's not really true. Of course, it was never true. Yeah, the wig the wig view of history is really pretty dead. I mean, you have like fucking like Steven Pinker or whatever, and obviously there are you know people. There is less poverty now in the United States, yeah, than there was thirty years ago. There are there are bright spots, of course. It's not not everything is not getting worse. But I, I, you know, there's also like the very real sense that like, you know, climate change, possible ramifications of technology. And I know every, you know, generation have it has its has its existential crises, at least since the 40s, really. But um, it just seems like this this sense of of, of cynicism that the. The, the the great war instilled uh, never really uh, left and that Tolkien and his friends calling themselves this society and you know completely unironic you know with no reservations declaring that they were going to each change the world and sort of remake society um and, and not in a power hungry way like it wasn't fueled by a lust for power i do, that does feel like a very distinctly pre-World War One sensibility. I totally agree. Because, I mean, it sounds, it to us, it's just like, it's so cringe. Like, the, yeah, the completely. you know, the idea of like, I'm going to, it's so like, it's so earnest and cringe and, and we scoff at it. Um, but I guess the question is like, why? I mean, because it seems naive, I think. I also think there's some sense in which a lot of the people I know who sort of say stuff like that, no one outright says that, but says stuff like that. Yeah. Especially living in Washington, D.C. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the people who say that I don't think are coming at it from like the best intentions. I, I, yeah, I know. I agree with that. Uh, but I mean, it's clear that it's clear that that's not the case here. I think that it, I, yeah. I think that we just generally like, I think that we generally find like earnestness like that and sort of what we would perceive as naivete as being like extremely sort of off-putting and cringe, like culturally, like that's just part of our culture to be like saying, I'm going to change the world and meaning it earnestly is something that we like 
you know, we revile the idea of which, that which me and you both have multiple times sort of pushed back on. Like, I, I you know, we're both sort of earnesty pilled. I'm ex- oh, I, I'm extremely earnesty pilled. I think that we're, you know, I mean, I use like, obviously, like anyone, you know, I use a lot of like irony in my humor and stuff. But I usually think that like, being overly ironic is very, very bad. And it, it is like, it's not the it's not the way that you should like relate to other people. You know, you should be, yeah. you should be, you know, we're only here for a few years. We should be earnest and actually say what we mean to each other. Call and, your parents and tell, tell them that you love them and, and your grandma and, exactly. your, and your friends. Exactly. I mean, because listen, also, here's the thing. You could be G.B. Smith or Rob Gilson. Yeah. The, the sheer number of lives lost due to, to war and violence. I do think, like, a, a kernel of Steven Pinker's thesis is correct. That I agree, you know, that that the the sheer number of lives lost to violence and not to and, I'm you know, we're also not talking about World War Two, which you can, you know, make some very credible arguments that it's like that was a, a righteous and just war. Right. Uh, World War One. I, I don't really think you can make any argument that resembles that it is just these, you know, all of these empires that are all essentially bad that are fighting. Yeah, with, they're all bad. There are no good guys. Yeah, that are fighting with each other for these, you know, these 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 portions of land and doing but not but not even quite like their britain had no like it wasn't trying to conquer anything like it's not like that's one of the crazy things to world war one to me is like obviously there are economic motives but it's like really a sort of like all of it sort of stems from like imperial hubris and like self-realization of nationalist projects like even if you're just doing like a like a cold, vulgar Marxist interpretation of every war and looking at like the economic modes, for a war that big, those don't even seem as relevant. I think like for the Germans, there was certainly like more of that idea to to annex, right? That that was behind it. Uh, yeah, but like I, you know, what you're saying for Britain is is totally true. It was the to annex what also to annex like small provinces. Exactly. Yeah. Like why? <laughs> Like, like I like I mentioned in the Battle of the Somme, like four hundred forty thousand young Germans are on the front lines and die these gruesome, horrible deaths, and like to what end? Yeah, it's hard to not come out of that with a deep, deep, like permeating cultural sense of cynicism. But and 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 that's what makes Tolkien so special, I think, and and why you and I are such fans of Tolkien because it's, yes, there's not many other people who would have you know, fought in World War One and had basically all their friends die and then still come up with Tom Bombadil. I could not put it better. And I, I don't think there's a better way to to close this podcast out. <laughs> I, I, I I agree. Well uh this this has been a this has been a great long discussion actually. Long much longer yeah. much longer than I thought it would be. So yeah. um I caught I caught a second wind. Yeah yeah. Um yeah much much longer than I thought it would be. Uh, a, a very good discussion as always. Uh Sam thanks so much for taking the time here. Yeah this was wonderful. And uh, we will uh, talk to you next time. Bye. Yeah bye Hosted by Sam Lieberman and Kenny Tellerico. Our cover art is by Claire Harple. Our theme music is by Kenny Tellerico. Any materials or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes.